Hey, and welcome to Foolproof Theology. My name is Chase Davis, and I am your host. It's great to be with you. This episode is going to be just me today, and I wanted to offer a couple of reflections and provide you with a speech from Abraham Lincoln. Uh, this was at the suggestion of a friend who is getting his PhD in politics, and so I wanted to uh, to see what I thought of this speech that he suggested and do a live reading of it. Now, this is a speech by Lincoln. Lincoln was a famous orator. And I actually recorded this a couple days ago, but we just got a puppy in the house and the puppy was in a different room. And all throughout my reading of the speech, throughout the entire episode, this dog is wailing. And normally I would leave distractions uh, live, but it was so distracting that I I really wanted to re-record it. So I'm re-recording on a Sunday evening. And so if I seem a little tired, that's why. I'm recording uh, Lincoln's Lyceum Address. Now, Lincoln's Lyceum Address was in 1838. 1838, this was well before Lincoln's presidency. And it's actually interesting. I've discussed Lincoln a couple times on the pod with uh, once with Time and Klein. Um, we discussed kind of what was necessary to get rid of slavery. And how really the original constitutional republic that we had in many ways was broken Um in order to get rid of slavery with Lincoln. And so I had Oz Guinness also on the a recent episode, and we discussed Lincoln and how another Lincoln would be good. And I had one of my friends from the South, and I just felt, uh, it just reminded me of my family. And he goes, he uh, messaged me and said, good Lord, we don't need another Lincoln. He's the one that broke this whole thing. And whatever you think of that, uh, I think Lincoln is a fantastic leader to learn from, uh, obviously well, uh, well educated, not in terms of having a PhD or anything, but as you'll see from his speech, he's got a lot of great words, older words, older concepts in the speech that can really be helpful for us today. And then after I read the speech, I'll kind of give some reflections on the speech. So what we've got going on here is Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, giving a Lyceum address. Now it was originally called uh, something else. It was called the perpetuation of our political institutions. And so what Lincoln's going to do in this address is he's going to address a couple of things. He's going to address one, civil unrest in, in the nation. Now he's going to use a couple of examples and I'm going to use his words exactly. So uh, typically they're not words that I would use, but he uses them. So I'm just going to read the speech. He also used some words that I can have a hard time pronouncing. So bear with me as I read it. And because he was a famous order, I'm probably not going to do justice to the uh, delivery of the speech, but I at least wanted to get it out there to you. If you're listening on um, on the drive or you're watching on YouTube, I at least think there's a lot of concepts in here which are useful for us as we think about civil unrest in our society and what he suggests about America and what would lead to the downfall of America is really that the greatest threat is not from without, but from within. And... Uh, You'll get some other thinkers who think this way, like uh, de Tocqueville and his thoughts on democracy in America. He comes over and he says, the only people that are deserving or really can perpetuate this kind of governance, this kind of structure, this this constitutional republic, is uh, is a virtuous people, which makes you really consider, you know, what what it means for us today, knowing that there our society is filled with uh, people that are very unvirtuous uh, through a lot of different means. And I discussed that, I think, on a, a very recent episode 
uh, after I kind of on some of my recaps of NatCon and the concept of liberalism versus liberalism versus Christian nationalism. And how a lot of people are scared of Christian nationalism because it appears to be illiberal. And so what I suggest in that is, you know, should we should we begin questioning not the legitimacy of classical liberalism, but the perpetuation of classical liberalism as a cogent political order, given that people are in virtue. So I'm, I'm simply furthering the argument that de Tocqueville makes. All that's aside, going back to Lincoln, 1838, he's addressing kind of a young men's society in Illinois. And he's giving this speech, and during that time, uh, I always situate my history, being a native Texan, I always situate my history in relation to Texas history. So this was two years after the kind of Alamo, the battle for independence, when Texas at this point was its own country, uh, which was a wonderful time. And so 1838, you've got Lincoln delivering this speech, the perpetuation of our political institutions. So hope uh, hope you enjoy this reading. I'd love to hear from you. Any takeaways? I'll share a couple at the end, and I'll probably interrupt myself if uh, if I find something that I've got to talk about throughout the speech, but I really want to try to read the speech in, in toto before I make any remarks. So let's do this. Uh, 1838, Abraham Lincoln, the Lyceum Address. As a subject for the remarks of the evening, the perpetuation of our political institutions is selected. In the great journal of things happening under the sun, we, the American people, find our account running under the date of the 19th century of the Christian era. We find ourselves in the peaceful possession of the fairest portion of the earth as regards extent of territory, fertility of soil, and salubrity of climate. We find ourselves under the government of a, of a system of political institutions conducing more essentially to the ends of civil and religious liberty than any of which the history of former times tells us. We, when mounting the stage of existence, found ourselves the legal inheritors of these fundamental blessings. We toiled not in the stage of existence. I'm sorry. We toiled not in the acquirement or establishment of them. They are a legacy bequeathed to us by a once hardy, brave, and patriotic, but now lamented and departed race of ancestors. Theirs was the task, and nobly they performed it, to possess themselves and through themselves us, of this goodly land, and to uprear upon its hills and its valleys a political edifice of liberty and equal rights. Tis ours only to transmit these, the former, unprofaned by the foot of an invader, the latter undecayed by the lapse of time, and untorn by usurpation, to the latest generation that fate shall permit the world to know. This task of gratitude to our fathers, justice to ourselves, duty to posterity, and love for our species in general, all imperatively require us to faithfully perform. How then shall we perform it? At what point shall we expect the approach of danger? By what means shall we fortify against it? Shall we expect some transatlantic military giant to step the ocean and crush us at a blow? Never! All the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa combined, with all the treasure of the earth, our own accepted, and their military chest, with a Bonaparte for a commander, could not by force take a drink from the Ohio, or make a track on the Blue Ridge, in a trial of a thousand years. At what point, then, is the approach of danger to be expected? I answer, if it ever reaches us, it must spring up amongst us. It cannot come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of freemen, 
We must live through all time or die by suicide. I hope I am not over-wary, but if I am not, there is, even now, something of an ill omen amongst us. I mean the increasing disregard for law which pervades the country, the growing disposition to substitute the wild and furious passions in lieu of the sober judgment of courts, and worse than savage mobs for the executive ministers of justice. This disposition is awfully fearful in any community, and now and that it now exists in ours through grating to our feelings to admit. It would be a violation of truth and an insult to our intelligence to deny. Accounts of outrages committed by mobs form the everyday news of the times. They have pervaded the country, from New England to Louisiana. They are neither peculiar to the eternal snows of the former, nor the burning suns of the latter. They are not the creature of climate, neither are they confined to the slaveholding or to the non-slaveholding states. Alike they spring up among the pleasure-hunting masters of southern slaves and the order-loving citizens of the land of steady habits. Whatever, then, their cause may be, it is common to the whole country. It would be tedious as well as useless to recount the horrors of them all. Those happening in the state of Mississippi and at St. Louis are perhaps the most dangerous in example and revolting to humanity. In the Mississippi case, they first commenced by hanging the regular gamblers, a set of men, certainly not for a lively, following for a livelihood, a very useful or a very honest occupation, but one which, so far from being forbidden by the laws, was actually licensed by an act of the legislature, passed but a single year before. Next, Negroes, suspected of conspiring to raise an insurrection, were caught up and hanged in all parts of the state. Then, white men, supposed to be leagued with the Negroes, and finally strangers from neighboring states, going thither on their business, were, in many instances, subjected to the same fate. Thus went on this process of hanging, from gamblers to Negroes, from Negroes to white citizens, and from these to strangers, till... Dead men were seen literally hanging from the boughs of trees upon every roadside, and in numbers almost sufficient to rival the native Spanish moss of the country as a drapery of the forest. Turn then to that horror-striking scene at St. Louis. A single victim was only sacrificed there. His story is very short and is perhaps the most highly tragic of anything of its length that has ever been witnessed in real life. A mulatto man by the name of McIntosh was seized in the street, dragged to the suburbs of the city, chained to a tree, and actually burned to death. And all within a single hour from the time he had been a free man, according, attending to his own business, and at peace with the world. Such are the effects of mob law, and such are the scenes becoming more and more frequent in this land so lately famed for love of law and order, and the stories of which have even now grown too familiar to attract anything more than an idle remark. But you are perhaps ready to ask, what is this to do with the perpetuation of our political institutions? I answer, it has much to do with it. Its direct consequences are, comparatively speaking, but a small evil, and much of its danger consists in the proneness of our minds to regard its direct as its only consequences. Abstractly considered, the hanging of the gamblers at Vicksburg was of but little consequence. They constitute a portion of the populace that is worse than useless in any community, and their death, if no pernicious, pernicious example be set by it, 
is never a matter of reasonable regret with anyone. If they were annually swept from the stage of existence by the plague or smallpox, honest men would, perhaps, be much profited by the operation. Similar, too, is the correct reasoning in regard to the burning of the Negro at St. Louis. He had forfeited his life by the perpetuation of an outrageous murder upon one of the most worthy and respectable citizens of the city. And had he not died as he did, he must have died by the sentence of the law in a very short time afterwards. As to him alone, it was as well the way it was as it could otherwise have been. But the example in either case was fearful. When men take it in their heads today to hang gamblers or, or burn murders, they should recollect that in the confusion usually attending such transactions, they will be as likely to hang or burn someone who is neither a gambler nor a murderer as one who is, and that acting upon the example they set, the mob of tomorrow may, and probably will, hang or burn some of them by the very same mistake. And not only so, the innocent, those who have ever set their faces against the violations of law in every shape, alike with the guilty, fall victims to the ravages of mob law. And thus it goes on, step by step, to all the walls erected for the defense of the persons and property of individuals are trodden down and disregarded. But all this even is not the full extent of the evil. By such examples, by instances of the perpetrators of such acts going unpunished, the lawless in spirit are encouraged to become lawless in practice. And having been used to no restraint but dread of punishment, they thus become absolutely unrestrained. Having never regarded government as their deadliest bane, they make a jubilee of the suspension of its operations, and pray for nothing so much as its total annihilation. While on the other hand, good men, who love tranquility, who desire to abide by the laws and enjoy their benefits, who would gladly spill their blood in defense of their country, seeing their property destroyed, their families insulted, and their lives endangered, their persons injured, and seeing nothing in prospect that forebodes a charge for the better, become tired of and disgusted with a government that offers them no protection and are not much averse to a change in which they can imagine they have nothing to lose. Thus, then, by the operation of this mobocratic spirit, which all must admit is now abroad in the land, the strongest bulwark of any government, and particularly of those constituted like ours, may effectually be broken down and destroyed. I mean the attachment of the people." Whenever this effect shall be produced among us, whenever the vicious portion of a population shall be permitted to gather in bands of hundreds and thousands and burn churches, ravage and rob provision stores, throw printing presses into rivers, shoot editors and hang and burn obnoxious persons at pleasure and with impunity, depend on it, this government cannot last. By such things, the feelings of the best citizens will become more or less alienated from it, and thus it will be left without friends or with too few and those few too weak to make their friendship effectual. At such a time and under such circumstances, men of sufficient talent and ambition will not be wanting to seize the opportunity, strike the blow, and overturn that fair fabric, which for the last half century has been the fondest hope of the lovers of freedom throughout the world. I know the American people are much attached to their government. I know they would suffer much for its sake. I know they would endure evils long and patiently before they would ever think of exchanging it for another. Yet, notwithstanding all this, if the laws be continually despised and disregarded, 
if their rights to be secure in their persons and property, are held by no better tenure than the caprice of a mob, the alienation of their affections from the government is the natural consequence, and to that, sooner or later, it must come. Here, then, is one point at which danger may be expected. The question recurs, how shall we fortify against it? The answer is simple. Let every American, every lover of liberty, every well-wisher to his posterity, swear by the blood of the revolution, never to violate in the least particular the laws of the country, and never to tolerate their violation by others. As the patriots of 76 did to the support of the Declaration of Independence, so to the support of the Constitution and laws, let every American pledge his life, his property, and his sacred honor. Let every man remember that to violate the law is to trample on the blood of his father, and to tear the character of his own and his children's liberty. Let reverence for the laws be breathed by every American mother to the lisping babe that prattles on her lap. Let it be taught in schools and seminaries and in colleges. Let it be written in primers, spelling books, and in almanacs. Let it be preached from the pulpit, proclaimed in legislative halls, and enforced in the courts of justice. And in short, let it become the political religion of the nation. And let the old and the young, the rich and the poor, the grave and the gay, of all sexes and tongues, and colors and conditions, sacrifice unceasingly upon its altars. While ever a state of feeling such as this shall universally or even very generally prevail throughout the nation, vain will be every effort, and fruitless every attempt to subvert our national freedom. When I so pressingly urge a strict observance of the laws, let me not be understood as saying there are no bad laws, nor that grievances may not arise, for the redress of which no legal provisions have been made. I mean to say no such thing, but I do mean to say that although bad laws, if they exist, should be repealed as soon as possible, still, while they continue in force for the sake of example, they should be religiously observed, so also in unprovided cases. If such arise, let proper legal provisions be made for them with the least possible delay, but till then, let them, not, let them, if not too intolerable, be borne with. There is no grievance that is a fit object of redress by mob law. In any case that arises, as for instance, the promulgation of abolitionism, one of two positions is necessarily true. That is, the thing is right within itself, and therefore deserves the protection of all law and all good citizens. Or, it is wrong, and therefore proper to be prohibited by legal enactments. And in neither case is the interposition of mob law either necessary, justifiable, or excusable. But it may be asked, why suppose danger to our political institutions? Have we not preserved them for more than 50 years? And why may we not for 50 times as long? We hope there is no sufficient reason. We hope all dangers may be overcome. But to conclude that no danger may ever arise would itself be extremely dangerous. There are now, and will hereafter be, many causes, dangerous in their tendency, which have not existed heretofore, and which are not too insignificant to merit attention. That our government should have been maintained in its original form from its establishment until now is not much to be wondered at. It had many props to support it through that period, which are now decayed and crumbled away. Through that period it was felt by all to be an undecided experiment. Now it is understood to be a successful one. Then, all that such celebrity and fame and distinction expected to find them in the success of the experiment. There all was staked upon it. Their destiny was inseparably linked to it. Their ambition 
aspired to display before an admiring world a practical demonstration of the truth of a proposition which had hitherto been considered at best no better than problematical, namely, the capability of a people to govern themselves. If they succeeded, they were to be immortalized, their names were to be transferred to counties and cities and rivers and mountains, and to be revered and sung and toasted through all time. If they failed, they were to be called knaves and fools and fanatics for a fleeting hour, then to sink and be forgotten. They succeeded. The experiment is successful. And thousands have won their deathless names in making it so. But the game is caught. And I believe it is true that with the catching and the pleasures of the chase, this field of glory is harvested, and the crop is already appropriated. But new reapers will arise, and they too will seek a field. It is to, not, it is to deny what the history of the world tells us is true, to suppose that men of ambition and talents will not continue to spring up among us. And when they do, they will as naturally seek the gratification of their ruling passion as others have done so before them. The question, then, is can that gratification be found in supporting and maintaining an edifice that has been erected by others? Most certainly it cannot. Many great and good men sufficiently qualified for any task that they should undertake may ever be found whose ambition would aspire to nothing beyond a seat in Congress, a gubernatorial, or a presidential chair. But such belong not to the family of the lion or the tribe of the eagle. What? You think these places would satisfy an Alexander, a Caesar, or a Napoleon? Never. Towering genius disdains a beaten path. It seeks regions hitherto unexplored. It sees no distinction in adding story to story upon the monuments of fame erected to the memory of others. It denies that it is glory enough to serve under any chief. It scorns to tread in the footsteps of any predecessor, however illustrious. It thirsts and burns for distinction, and if possible, it will have it, whether at the expense of emancipating slaves or enslaving freemen. Is it unreasonable, then, to expect that some man possessed of the loftiest genius, coupled with ambition sufficient to push it to its utmost stretch, will at some time spring up among us? And when such a one does, it will require the people to be united with each other, attached to the government laws, and generally intelligent to successfully frustrate his designs. Distinction will be his paramount object, and although he would as willingly, perhaps more so, acquire it by doing good as harm, yet, that opportunity being passed, and nothing left to be done in the way of building up, he would set boldly to the task of pulling down. Here, then, is a probable case, highly dangerous, and such a one, as could not have well existed heretofore. Another reason, which once was, but which to the same extent, extent is now no more, has done much in maintaining our institutions thus far. I mean the powerful influence which the interesting scenes of the revolution had upon the passions of the people as distinguished from their judgment. By this influence, the jealousy, envy, and avarice incident to our nature, and so common to a state of peace, prosperity, and conscious strength, were, for the time, in a great measure, smothered and rendered inactive, while the deep-rooted principle of hate and the powerful motive of revenge, instead of being turned against each other, were directed exclusively against the British nation. 
and thus from the force of circumstances the basest principles of our nature we are either made to lie dormant or to become the active agents in the advancement of the noblest cause that of establishing and maintaining civil and religious liberty but this state of feeling must fade is fading has faded with the circumstances that produced it i do not mean to say that the scenes of the revolution are now or ever will be entirely forgotten but that like everything else they must fade upon the memory of the world and grow more and more dim by the lapse of time in history we hope they will be read of and recounted so long as the bible shall be read but even granting that they will their influence cannot be what it heretofore has been even then they cannot be so universally known nor so vividly felt as they were by the generation just gone to rest at the close of that struggle nearly every adult male had been a participator in some of its scenes the consequence was that of those scenes in the form of a husband a father a son or a brother a living history was to be found in every family a history bearing the indubitable testimonies of its own authenticity in the limbs mangled in the scars of wounds received in the midst of the very scenes related to history too that could be read and understood alike by all the wise and the ignorant the learned and the unlearned but those histories are gone they can be read no more forever they were a fortress of strength but what invading fo foemen could never do the silent artillery of time has done the leveling of its walls they are gone they were a forest of giant oaks but the all-resistless hurricane has swept over them and left only here and there a lonely trunk despoiled of its ver verdure shorn of its foliage unshading and unshaded to murmur in a few more gentle breezes and to combat with its mutilated limbs a few more ruder storms than to sink and be no more they were the pillars of the temple of liberty and now that they have crumbled away that temple must fall unless we their descendants supply their places with other pillars hewn from the solid quarry of sober reason passion has helped us but can do so no more it will in future be our enemy reason cold calculating unimpassioned reason must furnish all the materials for our future support and defense let those materials be molded into general intelligence sound morality and in particular a reverence for the constitution and laws and that we improved to the last that we remained free to the last that we revered his name to the last that during his long sleep we permitted no hostile foot to pass over or desecrate his resting place shall be that which to learn the last trump shall awaken our washington upon these let the proud fabric of freedom rest as the rock of its basis and as truly as has been said of the only greater institution the gates of hell shall not prevail against it it's a great speech lincoln gives here um a few kind of thoughts uh just as i reflect on it after reading it one he suggests in the speech uh the upholding of the constitution and the laws of the land from really every aspect of society um from grammar schools to um just kind of common tradition to also pulpits and it, it reminds me of a recent remark by michael flynn who uh who, who made a crude suggestion that the constitution was somehow divinely inspired and i understand the uh 
the the bitter remarks that were directed there. Uh, many of my pastor friends were were rightly uh, upset and displeased by this kind of equivocation of the Bible with the Constitution. However, if we look at Lincoln's speech here, he he suggests something similar that all throughout our land uh, in America, we should be people that that reinforce and pass on the traditions and the constitutions and the laws. And as I, as I was reflecting on something, uh, even this morning, regarding passing down kind of traditions and the American tradition, the, uh, the political religion of the nation, as Lincoln puts it in the speech, I was reflecting upon how if we fail to do that, if we fail to, uh, whether you want to use a strong word like impose or just a, a softer kind of word like pass down our tradition, then we will inevitably open ourselves to all sorts of tyrannical forces within the nation because the people will have not had the same kind of uh, visceral relationship to the spirit of 76, as Lincoln puts it. There won't be a family member alive who can recount the stories. And I think that that speaks to a lot of how people are formed. Um, you know, it's easy to look back at battles and histories of different nations and peoples and even your own family lineage. And without people to pass on the stories that embody those stories, the tradition cannot continue. And in many ways, this is consistent with how God made us. Uh, God made us as creatures that are designed to learn. We we all learn. We uh, We are shaped by mothers and fathers. We are relationally formed by others. And so when we don't have those primary relationships that had experience in, in fighting for liberty and establishing what once was an experiment, as he calls it, and now a successful one, when we don't have those people in our lives, it can be hard to conceptualize and really put into action what the revolution was about. And unless we pass down our tradition and, and make our values explicit and defend those values and make them really at the forefront instead of the, the background of our national identity, then what will inevitably happen is tyrannical forces will rise up within seeking to uh, subvert the Constitution and the laws of the land in our American tradition. Um, either they'll do so by passive means or kind of uh, behind the scenes, or they'll do so explicitly. And this is what we saw in 2020, and this is what we've seen with the Ill illiberal left, as they've kind of done their long march through the institutions and eroded really the the uh, the American tradition. You see this in kind of the uh, the faux history of the 1619 Project, where they're trying to retell the American story with their own values, with their own set of criteria, through which to judge past generations. And I was telling my sons about this in the car on the way home. You know, I have uh, I have ancestors. I can trace my ancestors back to the Revolutionary War, and so I had ancestors that fought in the Revolutionary War, and uh, I am an, as American as it gets in terms of uh, my own family lineage. And it's important that I, as a dad, pass on to my sons as an American uh, a special appreciation and a desire to uphold the Constitution and laws of America. And at one time I thought this to be a little juvenile or or even beneath the, uh, the standing of a Christian. Because after all, as uh, Bart Barber, the SBC president, said in an interview to uh, 60 Minutes, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. But the fact that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world doesn't mean that it doesn't impact this world. And, and we still say the Lord's Prayer where we ask for uh, Jesus' kingdom to come. We, we pray for that. 
And so I, I, I think I used to think it not beneath me, but, but something uh, kind of tertiary at best. And now I'm really convicted that uh, for my own children, uh, I need to pass down to my posterity the tradition which my family gave to me. And I think that's really important. And I think one of the most important traditions we can give as Americans is an appreciation for the constitutional laws, the system of government which we've possessed, even if we live amongst a very unvirtuous people, a very unchristian people. We still have in our history a very Christian tradition. Um, even as Lincoln says in this address, it's a very Christian nation. Um, and he, he uses at the end Bible to uh, to say, look, the church is superior to the state, but he still prays and desires that the gates of hell would not prevail against it, meaning the gates of hell would not prevail against kind of this American, not just experiment, but people. And that's what I think a lot of people get wrong many times is they uh, they dumb down America as, just, as to an idea that's just a set of ideas. And that's a really Gnostic idea. Um, Americans are not, America is not just an idea, it's a people. And we are a people. And so I think there's a lot here that, that we could reflect upon if you were to go listen to it. And I'll put a link to it because I myself am better. Uh, when I read stuff, I comprehend it better. I'll put a link to it. So if you want to go read it, powerful speech. Hopefully I did the delivery justice um, but these were just some thoughts that kind of sprung to my mind. I'd love to hear what you think. What do you think of this speech? Um, maybe you're listening and you still don't like Lincoln after the speech. and That's fine. You can let me know. But I think there's a lot to glean from it. And uh, and yes, I do wish we had leaders that, that spoke this way clearly uh, about morals and ethics and passing down the American tradition. So uh, so I hope you enjoyed this episode, this kind of brief episode on uh, on the Lyceum speech by Lincoln. Uh, we've got some great stuff going on on the Patreon. I would encourage you to uh, sign up there, any dollar amount. Uh, you can get access to exclusive content. Right now, the exclusive content we're offering there is uh, my remarks on Matt Chandler's leave of absence and kind of his relationship at the village, the elders there, uh, Acts 29 as a network that he's the president of, just kind of various reflections on that. It's a, a fairly short episode, but I try to bring some uh, clarity on it without doing any kind of gossip or slander or needless speculation. And then coming up, uh, exclusive for Patreon uh, members, there's an episode I'm going to release on uh, Situation Australia with a pastor at City on a Hill Church down there. That's an Acts 29 affiliated church. It's also an Anglican church. And recently they had an episode where their chairman of the elder board was fired from his job because he was associated with City on a Hill and, he, and some of the stances they took on homosexuality and abortion. And the, there's just some interesting missiological implications of how that church is shifting, how that church is posturing itself, and yet how they're still uh, suffering uh, at the hands of the Australian government and the kind of the corporate environment there, where if you're on the elder team of a, a you know, theologically conservative uh, stance, a church that, that takes a theologically conservative stance, um, and I would say orthodox, not just conservative, theologically orthodox stance on abortion and homosexuality, then you may not have a job. And so I think that has wider implications for how we think about mission in our context and in the Western world. So uh, if you sign up at the Patreon, you're going to get exclusive access to that. That's not going to be shared publicly on the YouTube or uh, or podcast uh, medium just now. So check that out. Go sign up. And uh, we will see you next time.